0: How are y'all? How many of you are going to be humming that like, subtly in the back of your mind all the rest of the evening, right? Okay. How many of you were already humming it before you got here? Okay, good. That's what I thought. I like to hear that. Uh, that was, just in case you're curious, that was Jason Lancaster, our very own Jason Lancaster. That was his version of it, uh, used by permission. In fact, I was at a get-together with Jason Lancaster on... Um, Saturday, which was completely a backdoor brag, might I add, that I just said that. Uh, And I was like, hey, Jason, can we use your song? And he was like, bro, go for it. And I was like, yes. So uh, I'm super excited we're getting to do that. Hey, if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, uh, my name is Doug Hankins. I'm the young adult pastor here at First Orlando, and we are so excited, like Isaac said, with kicking off this nine-week series through the book of Jude. Now, you may be opening your phones or your Bibles and looking at Jude, noticing that there is exactly one chapter... And 25 verses in the book of Jude, and you may be doing the math because you're a smart person, knowing we're going to go to clip of about three verses per week, and you may be asking yourself, are these people really going to move that slowly or quickly, based on your theological preference, uh, through the book of Jude? And the answer is yes, we are going to move very intentionally through this letter for a couple of different reasons. Number one, most of you probably have never read this letter before because you get through the Bible and you feel so good about yourself. You're like, oh, there's this one chapter before Revelation and I want to get into all the craziness. Let's just get into Revelation, right? So you skip over and you jump into it. You've never looked at it. Uh, But the real reason we're doing this is because there's so much that's going on in Jude there's just such goodness that God has for us there. And I want us to camp out Uh, over the next nine weeks as several of us take us through this book. Uh, I would love for you guys to to love it and to own it and to be able, by the end of this, to teach it to someone else, maybe in a peer-to-peer setting over coffee or, or, or in the living room of your home. So to jump in, to set up the whole nine weeks, here's what I want us to do. Uh, I want to talk about uh, the Oscars, and uh, in particular, I'm going to talk about one film. Uh, it's this film, it's an it's a animated feature that won Best Animated Feature of the Oscars, a Disney film called Coco. Anybody seen Coco in here? Show of hands. Okay, Coco fans. Uh, so Coco is basically the story, and I, I'm not, no spoilers here, I'll just kind of give you the premise. It's the story of this boy named Miguel, and he grows up in a family of shoemakers. And his family's like, you're going to be a shoemaker. That's what you do. You make shoes. And so he's getting ready to apprentice to become a shoemaker and kind of go on that track. But secretly within his heart, he wants to be a singer, right? And so he has these like private moments where if he's really honest, he, he dreams about having a guitar and becoming this musician and traveling all over Mexico and singing. And that's kind of the whole premise of the story. This is not too uncommon. You always see these films where someone is doing one thing, but secretly deep down, they long to do something else for this other life. And the reason I bring that up is because I find this to be a very common theme in life, right? Maybe you're here today, and this uh, describes you. You're living this one way in life, and secretly, in your heart of hearts, if you're really honest, you wish you could be doing something else, right? Maybe not living a different life. Maybe it's not that you would have different parents or different circumstances, but maybe what it is you just wish you could live life differently, the life you currently have, you want to live it in a different way, with a different lifestyle. and You set these goals around New Year, you want to you know, set resolutions, you want to live your life just a little bit differently, and then the New Year comes and you end up moving back into those well-worn habits, into those uh, pathways that you're comfortable traveling in, and you just kind of regress into your comfortable pattern of your life, and before you know it, you just feel like this trolley. You guys know what a trolley is? If you've ever gone to San Francisco, you're on a trolley, it has a set path, and you just feel like you're on this set path, just moving through life. Like it's never going to change. Like everything is scripted for you. And you're playing this role in your life that there's nothing you can do to change it. It's like you're hitting the ceiling and you can't get past it. And you just think, man, I wish all I can do is wish to live my life differently. I wish I could be part of something that changes the world. I wish I could be part of something that changes the world. I've met a lot of people over my life, uh, and it's really interesting. Uh, I I, I hear people, specifically Christians, when we talk about this topic of wanting to live a life that matters. These Christians will often uh, tell me sometimes, man, I I wish I could do this, but I just, I don't think it's for me. I think that's for some other life. Um, I meet non-Christians who say the same thing. In fact, there's kind of four categories of people that I tend to run into, and maybe this, one of these four categories is close to where you are today. Maybe you're someone who says this, I was born into a non-Christian family. So the best I can hope for is to get right with Jesus so I can live maybe a little more moral life, right? I'm living as a non-Christian, maybe amorally or non-morally. Maybe if I get right with Jesus, then I can be just a little bit moral. There's no way God's ever going to use me to change the world. Maybe you're someone who was born into like a Catholic family, right? And so what you think is maybe I can get right with Jesus, and that can be a little bit less religious, but there's no way God's ever going to use me to change the world, right? Less religion, that's the best thing. That's the win here for me. Maybe you're someone who was born into a dysfunctional family, right? You're born in this really dysfunctional family. You, the best you can hope for is to believe in Jesus and get right with him and escape the dysfunction. Maybe you can live a little more healthy life, but you're never going to be part of anything that changes the world. Or maybe you're someone who's born into a Christian family, and your thought is, well, maybe one day I can get right with Jesus, become less religious, less Christian, less restrictive, There's no way I'm ever going to be the kind of person who can change the world. I'm like Coco. I'm stuck. I want to be something else, but I know I'm just going to keep going in this way. This was, uh, this is incidentally, I can relate to this because this was me when I was 16. If you don't know my story, uh, I grew up in a non-Christian family. In fact, I grew up in a, what would be an atheist or an agnostic family. And my dad was well known in town for being the atheist lawyer who Voted Democrat, like that was like and that. Voting Democrat was kind of a bad thing, kind of among people that I associated with. You may be a Democrat here today, and you're like, "Wait a minute, Jesus rode in on a donkey. What's going on here?" It's clearly a nod to Democrats. Uh, that was at least what my dad would say. But my dad's a non-Christian. He is the guy in town who's just kind of this atheist lawyer, and I wouldn't say he's shady, but he was just maybe aggressively anti-Christian. And my dad had a um, my dad had an issue uh, where he would just decide it was okay to sleep with everybody in town who wasn't my mom, right? And so I lived in a small town in East Texas, and so my dad got a reputation as being that guy. So guess who got a reputation as being that guy's son? Me. So it made it really fun to go to school where people gossiped. And I remember when I was 16, just before I was 16, I became a Christian. Uh, I went to church, I heard the gospel, I prayed to receive Jesus. And the way people talked about me, even in this church community was, that's Doug, the atheist philanderer fornicator son, right? Uh, bless his heart, I'm glad he's saved. But, uh, you know, that's, a, that's like the best we can do right there, right? He's saved, so he maybe he won't be just like a fornicator when he grows up. And uh, I was like, I don't even know what fornication is, right? Like until the Red Hot Chili Peppers came out with Californication, I'd never heard that term before, right? So I was like, what is this word? Uh, and so I just remember thinking that as a 16-year-old man, God might, he saved me, and I might become a little more moral, maybe more moral than my dad is, but there's no way God's ever going to use me to change the world. And the thing I want you guys to understand tonight, if that's you, if you're any one of the people I've talked about, or you know someone who is, Jude, writing to Jewish Christians just before 70 AD, is addressing this very issue and that's how he starts off his letter. And so I invite you to read with me if you have your bibles or your phone apps open or you can read on the screen here or in your bulletin. Here's what Jude writes in verse 1 and 2. It's all we're going to do today. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy peace, and love be multiplied to you. I want to give you guys the big reveal up front. I want to summarize these two verses for you. Here's the main thing I think Jesus is going to say, and we're going to address it in sequential order, but here's the main thing I think he's going to say. It's not the life you're born into. It's the life you're reborn into that matters. It's not the life you're born into It's the life you're reborn into that matters. I want to talk about this in two parts. First part, this. It's not the life you're born into. Jude writes this in the first part of one. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Okay, well, what's that all about? I don't know if you know much about Jude, uh, the author of this letter, But here's Jude's backstory. So you tell me if you can either relate or can't relate with this. Jude is the youngest brother of Jesus. He's a half-brother of Jesus because obviously Mary would be his mom, Uh, Joseph would be his dad, uh, but Jesus's dad was the Holy Spirit, right? So I'm just kind of genetically, right? Just breaking that part for you. Uh, But Jude has like mom and dad, you know, Joseph and Mary. He's the youngest brother. There may be some sisters. So he's the youngest brother of Jesus, but it gets better. His older brother, because Jesus is his oldest brother, his older brother is James, the guy who wrote The book of James, right? The letter of James. James, by the end of his life, is a famous megachurch pastor in Jerusalem, okay? James is very well known in the Christian community. He's a megachurch pastor of a a big congregation, a network of house churches that's living in Jerusalem, one of the five major cities of the world. So James is kind of a big deal in this community, Okay, so just just imagine what it's like to be born into that. Judah's probably 15, maybe, years younger than Jesus. Uh, So right about the time Jude is uh, entering kindergarten, uh, first grade, second grade, third grade, something like that, right? Uh, As he's doing this, he's starting to maybe notice his brother is a little bit different, right? Uh, By the time he's 15, 16, you know, about the time he's starting to drive, if they had cars back then, right? His brother is performing miracles and having a public ministry, dying on the cross, raising from the dead, or being raised from the dead after three days, right? And he's a 16-year-old right? So he's like, hey mom, I won my track meet. She's like, oh, that's really nice. Your brother Jesus was resurrected from the dead. And he's like, oh, that's that's good too. Like, cool, I, I'm sh- I prob- that, I'll probably put that on the refrigerator. I mean, if it was me, but you know, yep. tomato, tomato, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah. So this is the life he grows up in. His oldest brother is God. And I mean, his older brother is a famous megachurch pastor, and he's Jude, right? And so you can imagine at every dinner table conversation they have, not that his mom is mean, not that she's talking down, but you, just, you know, they sit down and friends and family are gathering around the table, and they're passing around all the beverages, people are getting situated, and they're like, so tell me about your family, and Mary's like, well, you know, Jesus is, you know, in heaven, sustaining everything over the universe, and he's doing a pretty good job at that, right? We're really proud of him. Uh, You know, James, James, yeah, you know, he's got a pastor of a, you know, pretty large number of churches in Jerusalem. And, you know, I mean, he's writing books and people are reading it and quoting him all the time. Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. Yeah, that's my son, James. Uh, yeah. Oh, and Jude, right? Yeah. Right. And you're Jude, you're like, I'm literally two rows over from you. Like, I'm hearing this, right? He grows up in this household He's got these these luminary figures in his family. Can you imagine the kind of pressure that puts on him as a human being? And there's two ways Jude could go with this, right? There's two ways you can see Jude moving with this. And the first way is this. Uh, He could start borrowing credit from his brothers. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Um, Barry Switzer, who is a football coach, Uh, for the University of Oklahoma, uh, once said this of these types of people. He said, they're born on third base and they think they've hit a triple, right? If you know baseball, you get this. I can tell this is not a baseball crowd. You're like, baseball, what is that, right? Uh, In other words, this is a person who's born maybe with a lot of privilege in their life and they are uh, not really aware of it. They're acting as if they'd earned that, right? Jude could have taken that approach. He could have been like, Um, You know, at dinner parties, he's like, hey, yeah, you know, I was talking to my brother Jesus, uh, son of God, uh, creator of the universe, and we were just hanging out the other day, right? He could be out there if Jude wanted to with the Instagram story where he's just like pulling up. and He's like, hey, guys, it's Jude. I'm just hanging out here. And oh, wait, who did that walk walk past me in the background over that lake? Yeah, that was Jesus, my brother. He walked on water. Cool man, tagged at Jesus. So you could click on it and see all of Jesus's followers and start to go, oh, wow, Jude is friends with Jesus or brother. Of Jesus, man, that's amazing. Or maybe he's on Facebook and he's going to an event and he's like, Yeah, you know, I'm hanging out at Epcot today with my bro, Jesus, Savior of the world, right? He could have totally played that off. He could have, on the one hand, borrowed all that authority. Or he could have gone the other way, where his brothers are such luminaries that he feels ashamed in comparison to them. And he just says, You know what? I'm never going to be Jesus. I'm not even going to be James. I'm just going to give up, right? Those guys can do the Christianity thing. I'm going to just be over here and do my own thing. And I'm, I'm just, I'm going to be like Switzerland. I'm just not involved in this whole thing right here. I'm just, I'm, 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 I'm neutral on the whole subject, but he doesn't do that. Here's what, here's what Jude does. He says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. He doesn't say brother of Jesus Christ. Why? Because For Jude, it's not about the life he's born into. It's about the life he's been reborn into. For Jude, the most important thing about Jesus in relationship to himself is not that he's his brother, it's that he's his savior. And he wants everybody to know, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. When he says, I'm a brother of James, he's not borrowing authority. He's trying to define himself over and against other Jude's that are in the community, right? Jude is a really popular name at that time period because it's basically like a Greek version of Judah, right? Which is essentially where they lived, okay? And so you have a lot of babies who are called Judah who were born about that same time period. You're like, which Jude? are you? I'm Judah number two. I'm Jude number four. I'm Jude number seven. And so he's like, listen, I'm Jude brother of James, right? And you can see it, it happens all the time. He's trying to downplay it. He's like, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm Jude brother of James. That James? Oh, yes, that James. Oh, like Jesus's little brother. Yes, that little brother, right? Instead of doing that, he says, listen, here's what you should know about me. I'm Jude, the servant of Jesus and the brother of James. And I think this is good news for us for two reasons. or It's good for two types of people. Number one, we should understand that God uses people with a noble backstory and those with a shabby backstory to change the world. God uses people from a no, with a noble backstory and with a shabby backstory to change the world. Again, You might be someone who's coming here and you're like, I have been born into all this privilege, this healthy Christian family that's completely perfect, right? We make like the Duck Dynasty people and Chip and Joanna Gaines look like nothing, right? We are just like the most perfect family that's ever existed. Like Billy Graham said of our family, you're amazing, right? We're a great family. I'm born into it, right? And guess what? God uses those people to change the world, If you've been born into a great family, if you have maybe a boring conversion story, that's totally fine. God uses those people to change the world because it's not about the life you're born into. It's about the life you're reborn into that matters. But he also uses people who are born into shabby backgrounds. Maybe you're from a dysfunctional family, or you moved here from another country when you were four because you were escaping something or trying to get here because Orlando is the land of dreams and Disney and whatever, and you've kind of been integrating into the culture. Guess what? Jesus uses all those people too to change the world. It's not about the life you're born into. It's about the life you're reborn into. Second point I want to make, again, I want to emphasize that it's the life you're reborn into. And I want to take a look at the second half of verse 1. James says this, I mean, Jude says this after he announces himself. To the audience of the people I'm talking about, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Called, beloved, kept. Three verbs, all in the past tense. And anytime a writer is using this type of device, he's trying to say something uh, in terms of parallel language about those terms. These are synonymous terms. They're they're all speaking to the same subject matter. Judas saying, the people who are in Jesus Christ, the people I'm praying that God would have mercy and grace and peace to, those people, the people of the church community, this is what we know about them. They are called, they are beloved, and they are kept. And there's, there is no accident about the order of why Jude is using this. Because these are three terms that are talking about what it means to be saved. What it means to be reborn into Jesus Christ. People who are saved are called beloved and kept. And here's what I mean on this. You can kind of think about it in terms of aspects, um, and they're on your bulletin. If you want to fill this in, it'll probably be on the screen. But number, the three important components of God's saving work in our lives are this. Number one, God calls us to be saved people. He calls us to be saved people. In other words, God initiates this thing. When you think about being saved, when you think about being reborn, when you, talk, when you think about what God does to save us out of the mire of the lives we're born into, uh, that process doesn't start with us coming to God and saying, hey, God, have you seen me over here? My life's really dysfunctional and messed up. Could, could, you, could you maybe save me? I'm in this pool and I'm drowning. I don't know if you saw that today, but uh, could you like pull me out? Lifeguard. Like, like We don't initiate things with God. God initiates things with us. It's His job to initiate things with us, and so when He saves you, it's not by accident. It's because He's called you out of something. You are called. If you're in Jesus Christ today, you are called in Jesus Christ. You are called to be that kind of person. The second thing I want you to note is this: that uh, He is uh, that that uh, God loves us as His saved people. We are beloved. Now that's a term of endearment. Uh, New Testament writers would often say this, they would refer to the church as beloved. Um, So sometimes they would get up and they would just say, beloved, I want to talk to you right now. Um, That sounds kind of weird to me. I mean, I think it's cool, but if I got up and was like, beloved, beloved. Right? Or if I use like a low voice to say that and go, beloved. right? <laughs> I feel like we may, that may lose a little bit culturally for us. So that's why I say friends, because I think it means the same thing. But if you want to use beloved when you're talking about the church, that's completely biblical and great. But, but there's something theological going on here. What Judah's saying is this, not only does God initiate salvation in you, but he sustains that salvation in you. He continuously loves you throughout your life, and he loves you well into eternity. He initiates, calls you into this life and this new life, and then he sustains you. He loves you throughout the course of your earthly life into this eternal life. Maybe the way you can think about it is when you get saved, God starts hugging you, and he just hugs you and hugs you you and hugs you and hugs you and hugs you till one day he's like, oh, you're with me in heaven. Oh, okay. Hi, right? It's just this long, constant hug that goes on. You are called, you are beloved, but finally you are kept. In other words, not only does he initiate and sustain, but he maintains his relationship with you. It's not something you can ever lose, Right? Once God initiates a saving plan in you, and once he continues to love you throughout your life, he keeps that, he guards it, he makes sure it has its intended effect so that what he initiates and starts, he brings through all the way to its completion as he moves you into heaven. The way to think about this eternal life that Jesus offers is this, Uh, it has this definite starting point, but it moves on Infinitely into the future. And that which you decide on this earth in this earthly life becomes made permanent in heaven. Okay. God calls us, he loves us, he keeps us for himself. And what Jude is trying to say about this is this is the essential identity of people who are in Christ. It's not how they're born. It's not the life they're born into. It's it's their rebirth, that new life that really matters most. And just to make this clearly applicable towards the very end of this, as we're uh, trying to like drive it from the kind of theoretical to the practical, let me give you two clear application points on what this looks like. Number one, it's this. If this is true, then I think it's not the power you're born into, it's the power you're reborn into that matters. It's not the power you're born into, but it's the power you're reborn into that matters. When you think about the, the life you're born into, and this is this is especially true if you're born into a family that's really networked well. Uh, you have lots of friends, your family has lots of friends, or maybe they have master's degrees or doctorates, and they've got either earning power or social power or community power or something like that, right? Um, you tend to think about all these social resources that, that make their way uh, in families, right? Uh, and so... Um, if you're born into one of those families, you can, at any given point, no matter where you are in your life, you can kind of rely on a friend or a friend of a friend or a friend of the family, and you know you have all these social resources that are around you, okay? Uh, the best way to think about this is if, um, you know, if it, either when you're little—yeah, that's probably the best way to put it—when you're little and you're sick and mom and dad have to go to work and they can't get a hold of a babysitter— there's got to be some kind of phone list. They're like, well, I'll try this person, this person, this person, to come over and watch you while they're at work, right? You guys remember that situation? If, uh, if you had people who came over, an aunt, an uncle, a grandparent, uh, someone who was your aunt, but she wasn't really related to you, right, but you still called her aunt, right? One of those people, that probably indicates you're part of some type of healthy familial network, right? Um, I remember when we moved, uh, first moved to Orlando, uh, we, we didn't really know anybody except for people in church. I'm from Texas, obviously. And so when we moved here, we didn't have like a lot of friends. And so, like, uh, you know, luckily my wife is able to stay at home. But if she was sick and I was sick early on, we didn't have anybody we could call on, right? Because we were network poor, okay? Now we have, like, all these people that we can call, a couple in particular who are college students who can come over and babysit for us or, like, live at our house, uh, you know, a few times a week, right? So we have all those people. But uh, some of you grew up in that situation where you have that. And what happens if you grow up in that family situation is you can tend to think in your mind what really matters in this life is the power of the network that I have around me. But here's the thing. If what Jude is writing is true... Then what you have access to, not in the life you're born into, but in the life you're reborn into, you now have the network resources of God. Think about that. The whole network resources of heaven are at your disposal. So when you're thinking about what possibly you could do in this world to be a world changer... You have the access of all of God and the heavenlies and the angels and everything that he can do at your disposal. Why? Because your father loves you and wants to lavish his resources on you. Now, this is, I want to be really clear. This is not purely in like a financial sense. What I hope you don't hear me say here is that, okay, if I become a Christian, I'm going to be wealthy and healthy and wise, and all of my wildest dreams are going to come true. That may happen, right? But I'm not promising you that. Here's what I'm saying and what I think Jude is saying. I think he's saying everything that's possibly available at God's fingertips are now uh, Available at your fingertips in in prayer, right? When you go to God and say hey, I have a need I really need this thing uh, God is someone who is in a disposition to go you're part of my family and there's a whole new thing going on here And so how can I bless you with what I have, right? How can I get you to where I need you to be for my glory and for your good and the good of the city uh, that you want to reach? So it's not about the power that you're born into. It's about the power you're reborn into that matters. The second one is this. It's not the family you're born into. It's the family you're reborn into that matters. Again, some of us were born into dysfunctional families. Uh, Not that we're going to have a show of hands. Everyone who was born into a dysfunctional family was like, don't talk about it, right? You're just sitting there, you're like, "Mm, okay, you're right. Uh, And obviously people who are laughing right now are like, yeah, that's my friend. That's definitely not me. It's totally the person sitting next to me. Uh, But, you know, I was, you know, we all to some extent have some dysfunction, uh, but I was born into a family that maybe had a little more fun with their dysfunction than others, right? We put the fun in dysfunctional. And, um, you know, you can grow up thinking, "Hey, I'm only going to be as good as my family is, right? I'm only going to be as healthy and as functional as my family is." Uh, and you know, so when, I'll I'll just kind of speak for my own life. You know, growing up, uh, you know, I, I didn't I didn't know any marriages that stayed together, and so as a 15, 16, 17 year old, I just thought divorce was just something that that everybody went through, right? I, I knew my family maybe wanted to stay together, but I knew that want didn't keep you together, right? And so divorce was just something that happened. I remember when Natalie and I, my wife, when we, got, we got married, um, we went through this like whole like season of infertility, right? Where we wanted to get pregnant and we couldn't. And it was really weird for us. And I'll tell you why it's really weird for us. And I don't think I've Told many people about this, so you guys are lucky. And I'm not sure if I should tell you guys about. It. No, I, I really should tell you about this. Okay, so everyone we knew in East Texas, and East Texas is basically like it's its own little interesting country world, right? And I love East Texas, but it was it was a little interesting. Um, uh, everyone that we knew, a lot of our step family and a lot of our f- cousins or whatever, like they they did the whole like um like. Go to some type of motor vehicle, either a car or a a mobile home, and consume alcohol and get pregnant. And then get married with a shotgun ceremony. Like, that was the thing. And I'm not putting any like judgment on you if that's kind of the situation you came from, but that was very prominent in the world that we knew. That was the format, right? Go to some type of motor vehicle, consume alcohol, get pregnant, get married, right? And so, like, if you did like any three of those, like, you could end up pregnant, right? Like, that was kind of how that worked. And that was just normal for what we grew up in. So imagine us in the midst of infertility and like we're trying and we can't get pregnant. And meanwhile, like, all of our cousins and friends are like getting pregnant, they're like, oh, I'm pregnant again. Oh my gosh, right? And they're complaining on social media, oh, I took another pregnancy test and this is miserable. I'm having my seventh child, right? And meanwhile, we're just like, I would take that seventh child in a heartbeat, oh. right? We're just crying. And so I kid you not, one night we're in like the throes of, of infertility. And I was like, Natalie, I have an idea. And she was like, What? I was like, we need to like drink alcohol <laughs> and find some type of motor vehicle, right? Because that's what happens for all my family, right? Those are the resources I'm thinking about. And I'm like, I'm, I'm in my late 20s, right? I'm in a PhD program, but it's still deep inside in the kernel of Doug Hankins is the kid who grew up in East Texas and knew like this was the secret formula, right? I was like, here's what we need to do. We need to not want to have kids, And then drink excessive alcohol and go to like, see if we can borrow a trailer home for the, like her dad had a trailer, like a trailer home camper on his land. Let's drive to Oklahoma. Let's go to your dad's trailer just for a weekend. I think we can get this done, right? because that's the family I grew up in. And that's the way I think, and that's the way I thought at that time. And in God's providence, we got pregnant not through those means, I can just tell you, right? We got pregnant twice, and I'm very thankful to him. Um, No trailers were harmed, and there was no alcohol abused in the process, right? But, But I tell you this story because for many of us, if we've grown up in dysfunctional families, or we've grown up in families that maybe that was the end, we can tend to think, All of my expectations are bound up in the worldview that my family has given me, right? And so that's the end. That's the narrow path I have for me. I can expect nothing more of that. I can follow Jesus and be maybe a little bit more moral than the family I grew up in, but I can expect nothing more. And here's the reality. Here's the reality. It's not the family you're born into, but the family you're reborn into that matters, First Orlando, at any church you go to that's in Orlando, if you're not from Orlando, at a church you go to, you're part of a spiritual family, a broader spiritual family that's that's connected all over the globe and all over the universe throughout all time. And guess what? That family, that family is full of life and abundance and power. And that's the kind of family that can lead you to a point of realizing, I don't have to rely on what I know. There's a whole world of the possible in the realm of what I don't know yet, and it's all at my my fingertips, because it's not about the life that you're born into, but the life you're reborn into that really matters. Jude knew this. We now know this. And I invite you now to think about this as we sing a song together. And so as is our kind of thing, I want to invite you to stand if you're able. Uh, We're going to sing one more song together. Remind me the song we're singing broken vessels that has amazing grace somewhere spliced in there. So if you know the words to amazing grace, you can sing along with us. Um, here's what I feel like we should do. I feel like our staff should come down front and just be available for prayer. Maybe this is hitting you right between the eyes and you want someone to pray with about this. We've got, uh, you know, some guys and some girls who'd be willing to pray with you. These aren't special, super duper Christians. They're just normal Christians like anybody else, just normal human beings. If, if you would need some prayer, they're here to pray with you and just, uh, Make sure they encourage you. Maybe you just want to sit there and contemplate what God may have said to you through Jude 1 and 2. Maybe you want to sing the song. However you need to respond during this time, I'm going to invite you to respond. And then I'll come back up after we get done singing the song, and I'll close this out.